This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I want to start off by thanking those of you who have sent us emails to info at Radio Parallax, something we encourage, to, uh, you know, give us a Give us a thumbs up. Give us the high sign. Say that you enjoy listening. And uh, we, are, we are glad to have you. And we are glad to be broadcasting on a somewhat intermittent basis, I guess you'd say, uh, new shows here in Davis and Chico. While driving up Highway 5 last week, I, I realized that there is a sweet spot somewhere on the highway where you can pick up both. KDVS at 90.3 and KZFR at 90.1. In fact, the two may even inter- interfere with one another a little bit. But uh, we could probably work out a simulcast where somebody could seamlessly transition while driving up toward Reading and not, not lose the signal. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? At any rate, today's show is going to, I think, steer away from the headline news. We will make that up to you on next week's program. There is an awful lot of things. There are an awful lot of things going on in the world right now, generally involving a lunatic named Donald J. Trump. But for the duration of today's program, we will not again mention that name, something I think all of you will find agreeable. Let's instead start with a quote we've used in this program on many occasions, (laughs) which is, and I, I can't remember who to attribute this to, but... Somebody once said that the news consists of telling people that Lord Jones is dead. People who didn't even know that Lord Jones was alive. And dovetailing with that sentiment, it is my privilege to report to you that Lord Carrington is dead. And in my particular case, I did know that Lord Carrington was alive, but I didn't know that he was still alive. According to The Economist, he passed away on July 9th at the age of 99. I must confess, the only thing I knew about him, or the only thing that registered in my brain about him, was his denunciation by my Croatian tour guide when we were driving up the coast out of Dubrovnik. If you will recall your geography of the Adriatic Sea, and I'm pretty sure you don't. But the left-hand side of it is composed of the Italian peninsula. If you sail up it to where you can't sail anymore, you're going to be somewhere between Venice in Italy and Trieste, which is also now in Italy, although it didn't used to be. The lovely little country of Slovenia has a small portion of coast, after which you are in Croatian territory, all the way down till you transition into Montenegro, Albania, and eventually Greece. Now, there is an exception to this description of Croatia dominating the eastern part of the Adriatic. There's a tiny little stretch of seacoast, really only a few miles long. There's a town on it called Neum, and that town is not part of Croatia. It is part of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Ivo, my tour guide, promised me that when we did find ourselves in Croatia, which we eventually did, he would show me this pathetic little piece of beachfront property that should, in his opinion, have remained part of Croatia. Thanks to Lord Carrington, he told me, Bosnia got a little bit of seashore. I assumed when he was telling me this, he was referring back to the era of, like, you know, the the Archduke Franz Ferdinand with guys wearing feathers in in their hats and such. But no, this was a more recent event. Lord Carrington apparently carved out this 
little piece of shore for Bosnia uh, sometime in the 90s. He was running around the Balkans, trying to patch things up in what at the time was a, a terrible war zone with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia into what is now, I guess, seven republics and counting. As reported on this program previously about that visit a couple years ago, it got pretty nasty in a lot of different places. And I have to say, just based on my own personal opinion, that uh, it seems to me that giving Bosnia a little bit of ocean access was probably a fair trade, given the fact that it was the Croatian army that shelled the famous bridge in Mostar and sent it tumbling down into the river, although it had stood in place for the past many centuries. In fact, in the town of Mostar, it is the tourist attraction, the rebuilt version. The original was built by a rather legendary Islamic architect. I was told by some of the locals that the new version might not last as long even in the absence of Croatian artillery shells. Anyway, for more on Lord Carrington, if you're interested, I would refer you to his obituary in The Economist and various other news sources. He really was a lord. He was a member of the House of Lords. He never really ran for office, although he held many posts in the British government. He was the first foreign secretary for 75 years, in fact, to have never held elected office. Interesting man, but uh, that's about all we have to say about him. And no, Lord Carrington has nothing to do with the Carrington event, which took place in 1859. And in what must be one of the greatest coincidences in the history of Radio Parallax, yours truly was planning on this show to talk about the planet Mars and water on the Martian surface. We actually have talked about this more than once. Given that Mars is a giant orange beacon in your sky uh, at, at present, and we hope you go out and check it out, dear listener, there's quite a show going on in the sky right now. If you go out and look after sunset to the west, a little bit north of due west, you will see Venus. You can't miss it. If you look due west after sunset, after Venus makes its appearance, the planet Jupiter will then emerge. If you keep looking left, you will, a little bit later, spot Saturn, which isn't quite as bright as the first two, but is still pretty respectable. The moon will come next, getting very close to being the full moon, which will bring about the longest lunar eclipse of the 21st century. Unfortunately for those of us in North America, it will not, underline not, be visible. If you want a ringside seat to this one, you should be in Madagascar, Sri Lanka, India, or perhaps Turkey. The whole thing's going to take place, uh, I don't know, sometime around noon on Friday for us, meaning the sun is high in the sky, the moon is on the other end of the planet. If you're listening in India, and we hope you are, you better go out and check this one out, because when the moon turns blood red, you're going to see Mars very close to it looking pretty spectacular. Now, you know that it has to be pretty close to the moon, without even checking, because Mars will be at opposition on this same day, I believe it is, as the lunar eclipse, meaning that the sun, the earth, and take your pick, Mars or the moon, are going to be kind of in a straight line. But oddly, because the earth is moving a little further out in its orbit and Mars is moving a little further in in its orbit, we actually reach our closest point several days later on the 30th. So please, dear listener, go out and do yourself a favor and check out five of the planets. We're counting moon as a planet in the old sense of things that move in the sky. Earlier this month, it was possible to spot 
Mercury also in the night sky, but it has continued in its path around the sun and has disappeared back into the solar glare, sadly. But uh, this is not cause for complaint. Venus is about as bright as it ever gets. Mars is as pretty much as bright as it ever gets. And Jupiter and Saturn are both very close to as bright as they get. But uh, back to Mars and water. I thought this would be a very interesting topic due to a field trip, which yours truly took up to Idaho. And how does Idaho <laughs> correlate to Martian water? Well, stay tuned. You're going to find out. But what's really cool is that headline news, as of yesterday, was that radar data from the Mars Express orbiter, which is from the European Space Agency, um, has been analyzed, I presume, by a team in Italy, and they have concluded that beneath the Martian surface they have found water, and not water in the form of ice, liquid water. There's been much speculation in scientific circles, and also on Radio Parallax, about the possibility of there being water, actual water, at depth, under pressure on the Martian surface. And the evidence now strongly suggests that this is, at least near the South Pole of Mars, a reality. It should be noted that down in our own Antarctic, here on planet Earth, where temperatures hover around, well, negative 80, beneath some very, very cold ice, if you dig down far enough, you will find lakes. You may have noted the news stories where they finally drilled down into one of these lakes below the ice, icy surface to find life, life all over the place. There's absolutely no sunlight down there so that whatever's driving those ecosystems is, uh, it has to do with, you know, chemical energy. But there's enough of it down there to where there are ecosystems and some wonder if it is not possible that there are microorganisms on Mars. Stay tuned. We'll have more to say about that. Before we talk about Mars, though, I do <laughs> want to report on one whimsical piece I've been sitting on since April 2004. This was a little piece in New Scientist magazine, which um, I found very entertaining. And since it talks about going to the moon, that's what it's about. The title is of the histories section is Welcome to the Moon, Mr. Armstrong. We want to doff our hat to the Apollo program of NASA, uh, which fulfilled John F. Kennedy's goal, put forth in 1961, to land a man on the moon and return him safety by the, safely by the end of the decade. It just saddens people of a certain age, like myself, to contemplate that that was 49 years ago this past week, and that next year will mark the 50th anniversary of our landing on the moon. Let me quote from this piece from New Scientist, which was authored by a Stephanie Payne. Said Ms. Payne, watching Neil Armstrong take his first small step onto the moon in 1969, one man had more reason than most to be excited. In Belgium, Herge, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Herge, creator of Tintin and his cartoon companions, was spellbound. To him, it seemed that Armstrong and fellow astronaut Buzz Aldwin were reenacting scenes from his comic strips, which he had drawn 20 years earlier. Herge had sent Tintin on his way to the moon in 1950. His lunar explorers, kitted out in heavy suits and helmets, strode with giant steps over a desolate landscape. Watching Armstrong and Aldrin was like watching those cartoons come to life. The similarities between Tintin's moon mission and NASA's were uncanny, 
and all the more remarkable because when Tintin went to the moon, the space race had not even started, and space travel was still in the realm of fantasy. Now, after Armstrong landed on the moon, Hergay sent a cartoon to him, which showed Armstrong moving from his lunar module to be greeted by a welcoming committee. Note of the article, when Hergay, the great Belgian cartoonist, launched his hero Tintin into space, he drew what could have been the blueprint for much of the Apollo mission. Note of the article, for while Tintin had been a phenomenon in Europe since 1929, he was virtually unknown in the U.S. Michael Farr, the U.K.'s leading Tintinologist, said, Neil Armstrong hadn't got the foggiest idea what that picture was all about. Then, when he did see the books, I think he was surprised, especially when he realized how early the story had been written. Tintin's Moon Adventure began as a comic strip in 1950, nine years before the first spacecraft reached the moon, and 11 years before Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. Keep in mind, this is 19 years before the Apollo 11 mission. It was published in two books, Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon from 1953 and 1954. Noted Stephanie Payne. In drawing Tintin's adventures, Hergay drew in events of the day, whether political or scientific, an element of realism that helped to make his stories successful. And he did his homework thoroughly when it came to this possibility of going to the moon. Now, this was a problem in 1953. No one had been there. The technology to take men to the moon did not exist. The sort of facts Hergay needed to make his story credible were hard to come by. It was a very esoteric subject at that time and not written about much. Even in science magazines, there was precious little because the idea was pie in the sky. Undeterred, Hergay collected every scrap of information he could find about the moon and what it would take to get there. He consulted two of Europe's most renowned astronautics experts, Belgian Bernard Huevelmans and the Frenchman Alexander Ananoff. He even built a model of his spacecraft and took it to Paris for Ananoff's approval. In 1953, rocketry was still in its infancy. And yet, Hergay proposed that a that professor put together a, a rocket, which was a spinning image of a V-2, which was the only model he had to go on, but with a nuclear motor. Knowing that there is no air on the moon, he had Tintin and his cohorts uh, wearing spacesuits, which were pretty reminiscent of what the astronauts eventually did bounce around the moon with. In the comic strip, the nuclear rocket was able to provide enough thrust to get out to the moon and back so they didn't have to worry about being weightless. Although with scientific accuracy, at one point in the comic strip, the nuclear motor is accidentally shut down, leaving Tintin and his friends floating around just like the astronauts in Earth orbit. Now, one thing that the cartoonist thought he got wrong and sort of lamented for years was that uh, his consultants believed that there could be ice on the moon. So when Tintin went to the moon, he went into a cavern and found ice all over the place and slid around on it, etc., etc. When he passed away in 1983, he still thought that he got it wrong. But in 1994, NASA's Clementine Probe picked up signs of ice in the giant South Pole Aitken crater. So guess what? There is ice on the moon. Whether it's lining caverns that have stalactites and stalagmites is another matter, but still. This is another example of how people can be inspired to want to do things scientifically in the way of exploration based on you know, the flights of man's imagination. And this is certainly true as regards the exploration of Mars. 
Observers in the early part of the 20th century and late 19th century imagined all sorts of strange things going on on the Martian surface. An Italian astronomer, Schiaparelli, saw what he thought were straight lines, which he called canali, or channels. This was mistranslated in English as canals, since canals were the work of people digging them. This got all kinds of crazy ideas going. A rich guy from Boston, Percival Lowell, set up an astronomical observatory in Arizona to, among other things, look at Mars. There was, of course, a rich legacy of stories by H.G. Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and Ray Bradbury surrounding Mars, which made it a very romantic place. Imagine the disappointment of scientists when we first sent a probe by it and it looked like a dead world, looked as dead as the moon. A cratered, uninteresting surface, which turned out to be wrong. So William Hartman points out in his Traveler's Guide to Mars, a wonderful, wonderful book, that um, if we had a little bit better instruments to look at Mars, we might have been able to see, perhaps, some of these craters in the early 20th century and would have had the idea that Mars was a dead world and therefore would have been less motivated to send spacecraft out to look at it. Said Hartman, we might have lost the sense of wonder and curiosity that drove much of the early space program. Let's talk about water on Mars and I think what we should do at this point is go back to our interview with William K. Hartman. In this case, we discussed mainly his book, The Grand Tour, A Traveler's Guide to the Solar System. The science in that book comes from Hartman, and so do most of the illustrations. He is also a planetary artist of some renown. I must say that we should have brought him back to talk about his A Traveler's Guide to Mars. Professor Hartman's still around, he's still active, and doggone it, we're going to see if we can't bring him back. But let's go to our archives and pull up what he had to say back in 2005. Liquid water is always a kind of holy grail. You know, when I say liquid water for planetary scientists, your ears perk up because we think that life started in in water on the Earth, in oceans on the Earth. So this whole quest for whether life started on other planets, what we usually look for is, is there any sign that there was liquid water there? Now we've seen that on Mars and Enceladus and a satellite of Jupiter called Europa. So it's getting very interesting in terms of looking for life. I, I mentioned uh, how much I enjoyed your, your your guide to Mars, and in reading it, you you made an excellent case for water being everywhere on the Martian surface, and yet NASA and, and, and the latest probes, they seem very, very reluctant to go there, and they're very cautious in making these, these announcements. Uh, what, what do you think is going on there? I've been puzzled by the same thing. I mean, uh, Mars is definitely a frozen, dusty planet on the surface, a sort of cold desert. And what we've been discovering, we know there's ice sitting there on the polar ice caps. You could see that. And the Odyssey mission in 2001 actually detected ice in the upper few feet of soil at high latitudes. So that's a definite detection. And that we know there was water flowing on Mars in the past because it, there's dry riverbeds all over the place. Uh, what we think is that that water was pretty abundant and soaked down into the ground and froze. So we think there's lots of massive uh, underground ice, like in, say, the permafrost, the tundra in northern Canada. Uh, you know, it's that kind of environment. But I think this argument uh, uh, about whether Mars is wet or dry, what people are really talking about is there's kind of two parts to Martian history. There's the early Mars, which pretty clearly had lots of water, and then modern-day Mars, which is pretty dry. So 
you have some scientists saying, hey, it's a wet planet, there's lots of water, it was, there's ice under the ground. That's kind of the way I was expressing things. And then you have other scientists say, oh, no, it's a dry planet because it's dusty on the surface. And they're talking about relative today relative to the early past. So I think some of this is a kind of a language problem. I think, you know, we mostly all agree that, that there has been water running around on Mars. Yeah, I certainly agree that there was more in the past and it's less now. Although um, there are some strange things on Mars. There's some, you know, fresh-looking gullies. It looks like water was released. There's at least one big river riverbed there that cuts into young lavas that uh, don't have any impact craters on them to speak of. So, you know, that looks like a case where some water was probably released when the ice melted under the ground and then a lot of water came gushing out. Maybe there was a big catastrophic flood. Well, we know there was a lot of water f- four billion years ago. Is it is it a consensus, you think, at this point that most of it must still be there underground? no doubt been a lot of it lost to space because Mars has lost some of its atmosphere. So I, you probably can't say that all the water there, there at the beginning is still there, but uh, large amounts of water have soaked into the ground. I think we're, most people are convinced and, and uh, are under the ground in ice, like I said, sort of like northern Canada, tundra or something. One of the, one of the lines of evidence there is it's pretty clear. If you look at craters on the moon, they just throw out big you know, there was a big explosion. It throws out uh, dust and, and dry boulders and stuff like that. You look at the same kind of craters on Mars, and what's thrown out around the rim of the crater is not this dry dust, but a sort of muddy slurry of stuff that's actually flowed. So it, it sure looks like you had an impact into material that had ice in it, and it, instead of Instead of turning into dry dust flying through the air, it was actually sort of like a muddy splotch of stuff flying through the air and and then splats down on the surface and flows. And that's what we see around some of those craters. Yeah, your atlas was quite vivid explaining how that, uh, that the closer you get to the equator, presumably the deeper the water is, the bigger yeah. the impact has to be to get that slushy effect. Yeah, these craters are a really neat tool because they, they you know, the depth of the crater that has that kind of muddy splotch, that tells you how far down it is to the to the ice. And it, and it actually turns out, you can look and you see, well, the smaller craters don't have it. And then once they get deeper than a certain depth, which is usually a few hundred yards, then you start to see this effect of the mud coming out. William K. Hartnell was the first winner of the Carl Sagan Medal from the American Astronomical Society. He was a participating scientist in the U.S. Mars Global Surveyor Mission and continues to do remarkable work. I I just can't say enough good things about A Traveler's Guide to Mars. It's not often you find an atlas that's a page-turner, but this one is. He includes photos that clearly show, could, could only be the result of massive floods on the Martian surface. The terrain resembles, well, they've argued about this for years and claimed, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a reason to think it wasn't water, but I've always thought it looked like water, driven channels. I still think that. certainly think Dr. Hartman agrees with that assessment without a doubt. What's really striking is how large these structures are. When they first started sending back pictures of the Martian surface and these strange, what looked like carved out areas uh, that, with, with stream beds going around craters. And the rims of craters are higher than the bottom of craters. And it looked as though the flow would sometimes go around the rim. It would build up tiered shaped structures in what had to be a riverbed. And they were so large that 
people were scratching their head and saying, do we have something like that here on planet Earth? And it turns out, we do. It just so happens that yours truly was traveling up through eastern Oregon towards central Washington on the way to Idaho and passed through what's described by some as one of the seven wonders of Washington State, the channeled scablands. And as I hold in my hand one of the Wikipedia entries about the channeled scablands of Washington, I'm struck by one topo map in particular, which looks exactly like a crater on Mars. Now, we'll talk about this at greater length in our second segment, but keep in mind that during the ice ages, barriers of ice formed in central Washington and blocked off the flow of rivers, which caused lakes to appear. This still happens um, here on planet Earth. Iceland is famous for having uh, glacial-dammed lakes that will occasionally bust loose with large and impressive floods. We're talking about a flood up in Washington wherein the combined waters of, say, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, dammed behind what was later called Lake Missoula, suddenly gave way, causing all of the water to flow to the Pacific in the course of two or three days, perhaps. Meaning that this giant flood had more water moving in it than all the rivers on Earth. In fact, some estimates are all the rivers on Earth times ten. As I look through Dr. Hartman's book, I see great channels on the Martian surface that look, that look exactly like what are called the coolies in Washington, these deep furrows carved throughout the lava rock of the central part of the state. You've no doubt heard of Grand Coulee Dam. It turned out to be pretty easy to put a large dam across the, the, uh, the mouth of one of these structures and put water behind it and generate so much electricity up in eastern Washington, that this was the foundation for the aircraft industry. That's why Boeing and others are up in Washington. Planes are made of aluminum. To make aluminum, you need lots of electricity. And, well, they found a source for it up there in the form of hydroelectric power. If you've driven up, dear listener, to the area where Oregon meets Washington, you no doubt will recall seeing this great furrow in the landscape that is the Columbia River Gorge. Evidently, when this dam broke, and by the way, that was just the last of the dam breaks. They believe that during the period of glaciation over the past, say, three million years, ice dams like this formed again and again and broke again and again, perhaps as many as 80 or 100 times. The area in Washington is called the Scablands because, well, all the soil has been washed off of it. When you've got a river flowing over it that's 600 feet deep, well, it tends to have quite a bit of scouring action. Anyway, I'm looking forward to talking more about the geology and the story of how they figured this out in Washington because therein hangs a tale. But it is really something to imagine that the Willamette Valley, which is, you know, near the coast in Oregon, was made fertile by the soil that got scraped off of eastern Washington and redeposited. Apparently, a lot of it went down to the ocean. I mean, like a lot of silty soil got deposited along the coast, which apparently has left giant beds of this stuff, which extend all the way down from Washington along the Oregon coast to lie currently off our northern California coast. And they talk about water on Mars. you got to keep in mind that we're pretty sure that there once was quite a bit of it. 
William Hartman, his book quotes Arizona hydrologist Vic Baker, who's an expert on both terrestrial and Martian channels, is making calculations back in his 1982 book on the Martian channels to conclude that one such outflow structure in its heyday disgorged 2 million to 70 million cubic meters of water per second. If you're keeping score, that's about 50 to 2,000 times the flow rate of the Mississippi. What caused that sudden melt remains a mystery, but we do know that there are volcanoes and uh, sources of heat, sources of very hot lava on Mars. Mars has only about one-tenth the volume of planet Earth. It's one-half the diameter, but of course, one-half times one-half times one-half, you're down near a tenth. It no doubt cooled off quicker than the Earth did and, you know, did not develop plate tectonics, etc., etc., we know for a fact it's had lava flows as recently as a hundred and some odd million years ago, which in geologic time is um, kind of the blink of an eye, really. This might be a good time to take a break. We've got plenty more to say about this subject, which we will do in our second half. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. For God's sakes, don't go away.